Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by the playwright, Richard Greenberg. Somehow, playwrights seem like an understatement. You are so prolific, Richard. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to read a little portion of your playbill and biography from the, uh, the current production of Three Days of Rain. Uh, Richard Greenberg is the author of Take Me Out, which won the Tony, the New York Drama Critics, Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Lortel, and Drama League Awards, The Violet Hour, The Dazzle, winning the Outer Critics Circle Award, Hurrah at Last, The Well-Appointed Room, many other plays. Uh, Richard Greenberg has twice been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He is a member of the Ensemble Studio Theater and an associate artist of South Coast Repertory. His new play, The House in Town, will open at Lincoln Center in mid-June. Now that we've taken up half the program, Richard... (laughs) (laughs) And not even covered everything. Not even covered, just barely scratched the surface. Three Days of Rain has gotten a lot of publicity because of Julia Roberts, who stars in it. It's basically a three-character show. She plays two different women, and the two men in the show each play two different men in relationships to one another. Yes. Basically, yeah. Would you care to elaborate now on your own play? Elaborate on my own yeah. play? Just, just, for, just for, um, for, for our listeners, just kind of set up who these people are and what the storyline is. Um, I've actually uh, always said that the uh, play should come with a warning that says some assembly required <laughs> because it's, um, you know, it, it's almost a mystery. Um, in the, the first act, we see uh, these adults, these this uh, brother and a sister and their best friend, who are um, trawling through the mysterious legacy of their parents in the second act, we see their parents and um, what really happened. In the first act, they they come to some conclusions. In the second act, we realize the conclusions were provisional and largely inaccurate and based on all sorts of missing information. Okay. The Mm -hmm. woman, of course, Julia Roberts, plays both of the women, and then Paul Rudd plays uh, her brother. Her brother, brother and and later her... uh, Her. It's in reverse uh, um, order, so she plays her... He plays her husband in the in, second act, in, in act the two, father right. of the two kids Which is set 35 act. years earlier when they were, in fact, about the same age as mm-hmm. their children in Act 1 yes. were. Yes, conveniently. It's certainly just one of your plays in which you play with different times within the same play and often require actors to play counterparts of themselves or, or other characters whose lives impinge on others. Uh, what appeals to you about that Device of the, of shifting the device of shifting. Well, you know, I uh, I think some of it may have to do with um, uh, the fact that I, I, when I was young, I I thought I wanted to be a novelist, and novels managed to cover enormous uh, spans of time, and plays have a harder time doing that. So um, uh, I, I sort of try to abbreviate. I, I I realized just a couple of years ago that there was a a peculiar emotional source for this and 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 one that's almost embarrassing um sometime when i was in college i came home i uh, don't for some vacation and it was during i guess a pbs pledge drive some <laughs> special anyway the the um the the um the original version of the Foresight Saga, I don't know if you remember the Foresight Saga, was being run in a row. It was something like 24 hours nonstop. And um, that Foresight Saga, if you don't know, it was sort of what actually turned PBS into the last colonial outpost of Britain um, it, because it was so vastly popular. But anyway, I found um, I kept checking into it while doing other things. Do you know? It spanned, I don't know how many years, 50 years. The, the, um, and 
I'd sort of wake up and watch 20 minutes and then go about my day or have lunch and come back and the kid who'd just been born had died um, in World War One. It was sort of, you know, right after lunch. Um, and I... There was something about that that was curiously moving, about this acceleration of time, the way um, the kind of the force of time of history could be felt by just by speeding it up. And I think somehow I internalized that without knowing I would. I don't even know if I meant to be a playwright at the time, but I do think that was a curious source of my technique. Well, in your work, it's it's a it seems to be a continuum. Certainly, playwrights like Alan Akeborn and even J.B. Priestley have used these techniques. Was were, was any of that an influence? I, I can't, certainly not Priestley, because I don't know any of his plays. I'm sorry to confess that. That's bad of me. I'll go at once. Um, no, and I don't think, I don't, I don't suppose that, no, Akeborn was certainly not a direct influence. I suppose just the fact of knowing he was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, you just know that certain things are possible because you you hear that they're being done. So it, it might have been a, a very oblique influence in that way. But you create you create little puzzles for mm-hmm. for your actors because they have to flesh out different different mm-hmm. characters and and different periods even in the same play. Mm-hmm. And indeed, for the audience because you require the audience to, in, in some cases, fill in the gaps or make make connections. Well. Uh, yeah, and I think it has a polarizing effect. I mean, if to an audience that's willing to do that, um, uh, it's. I, I think it enhances the experience a lot. I think not making people work that seems um, um, sort of cruel or important in some way, but but really allowing people to to become the final term of the evening. Do you know for their own minds to be engaged that way? For to people who really love the theater, that's a good thing. I think to an audience that's been lulled or um, force-fed or, or and, and, and likes it, that, that can be off-putting, frankly. Well, in the case of Three Days of Rain, um, in the first act, when the, the current generation, shall we say, the 1995 generation, the, the children, uh, who are adults, uh, the, the one son, the Paul Rudd character, finds a diary that his uh, his father has kept some years earlier, back 35 years earlier, and there's one page with the annotation, Three Days of Rain. It's the only thing written on that page, mm-hmm. and they're puzzling as to what it is. And then the, later in the show, the title is revealed, the, the meaning of it. Was there ever a consideration on your part to do the show in chronological order, or is it more forceful this way? Have you done in reverse order? It never order? occurred to me to do it in chronological order, because mysteries go backwards. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like a case of uh, laying the clues with the first generation, then finding the answer to the second. It was the other way around, more or less. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's very hard for me to um, go to the beginnings of anything I've written because I always forget them. Hmm. Um, I, they're actually I, – I do know a little bit. This play started – actually, wait. I'm, I'm remembering something which may somehow pertain to your question, um, that there was an antecedent to this play um, that came about in a sort of odd way. Uh, it was when I was right out of drama school. My then agent, Helen Merrill, induced a producer, a commercial producer named Jessica Levy, to commission me. Um, and um, when I'd been at drama school, a couple of us had had this idea, which was entirely naive, of coming out and writing our quote-unquote commercial comedy, um, and, which would, of course, make our fortune and enable us to become willfully obscure for the rest of our lives. Um, so I thought this was my opportunity. There were problems. One is 
there was no such thing as a commercial comedy <laughs> anymore. Um, and the other was that I, if there had been, I wouldn't have known what it was. So, but I still thought, well, this will be the mission since it is a commercial commission. And I, I, I started to think about what historically had been commercial or Broadway comedy, these sort of romantic farces, which I didn't really know very well and know mostly through their um, titles and uh, the title songs from the movie adaptations and sometimes their poster art. And that, all of that appealed to me for some reason I didn't really know. So I decided I would go to the root of what it was that um, was appealing to me. And I ended up writing the most impenetrable play I've ever written. It was a kind of deconstruction of a commercial comedy because I was actually so uncomfortable with the mission I'd set for myself that <laughs> I, I had to... Anyway, I had to complicate it um, in a way that made it completely uncommunicative. Um, but it was a generational story, um, and it did go in order. And so I think one of... What happened years later is I, I read... Um, I put it aside because it was unproducible. And... Um, but there was always a kernel of it that, that somehow uh, appealed to me or stayed with me. And I read um, years later uh, Jane Jacobs' book, the Jane Jacobs who just died uh, last month, I guess, um, Death and Life of the Great American Cities, which taught me somehow how I was urban. Do you know? Because I always knew I was and yet couldn't figure out how. And it put me back – it brought me back to that play. And from that moment on, it, I'd flipped. I don't know. The – and I know. So when it, this version of the play always went in this order or out of this order. And how did this version of the play come into your mind? I don't know. It just, I don't know. Somehow, I think I was mowing the lawn at my parents' house. Were you really? Or raking, no, probably raking leaves. I was doing something at my parents' house that was helpful, which means it was a rare occasion. And um, I ju it just started forming itself. Thinking, wouldn't this be a great idea to write about these two I, some, generations? Some, I think I just read the book and uh -huh. then remembered the play, uh -huh. and it just started taking shape. Uh -huh. The level of attention given to this play, given its current cast, is, is certainly extraordinary for play in any venue. But this is a play that you wrote about 10 years ago now. It mm -hmm. was produced not just here in New York, but had enormous number of productions throughout mm -hmm. the U.S. in regional productions as well as in London. But, of course, it's now talked about as a revival, only yeah. 10 years on. What was your feeling about revisiting it in such a major way, even at a level of attention that didn't attend its, any of its prior productions? Um, what's your perspective on it now? Um, well, we've been talking for a few years. Actually, I've been talking with my agent about finding a way to revive it because there had been some feeling at the time that it, it had um, kind of a clipped run. It, was, it, wasn't, it, it, it wasn't extensive and because of people's... Um, You're talking about the original, the original Manhattan Theater the original Club. Manhattan Terrific Theater Club. cast, John Terrific, Slattery, Bradley Whitford, and mm -hmm. Patricia Clarkson. Patricia Clarkson. It was fantastic. But it didn't even get to extend because the actor's schedules didn't allow it. And, and a lot of people really liked it a lot and, and talked about it. So it's a play that we've always wanted to do more. And then one day... Um, uh, I guess we t brought it up to Joe, and Joe had been interested. And then my agent, George Lane, called me and said, well, Julia has the play. She's reading it this weekend, and we'll find out what she thinks. And I said, Julia who? Because <laughs> I really <laughs> had no idea what he was talking about. I thought the, the head of the director's league or something. Anyway, I, I didn't know. And then he told me, and I just laughed because I knew it was impossible. <laughs> but I liked having an agent who didn't think it was impossible. Um that was a bad line reading. Didn't think it was. Didn't think it wasn't. Didn't think it was impossible. I'm sorry. That's the way that goes. Um, uh, 
And then it sort of took off from there. And I thought it was the thing I, the thing that made me happy is that I thought it was very good casting. Do you know? I was not, I was not willing to just, um, sell this play. Do you know? Cause I cared about this play. I don't, I don't, um, have any great attachment to a number of plays I've written. You know, I've tried them and, and they've wor- not worked and, that's fine. You know, they were honest so you efforts. you love some of your children better than others? Yeah, but you know what? Because that children thing, that, that's a really <laughs> inaccurate metaphor. Okay. It just is. I've <laughs> never accepted it. It's just children, <laughs> real children have feelings and real children can go out and damage other people's real children. Plays don't work that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I can let go of a play that um, doesn't work. Um, but this one I was I, I cared about. And, you know, I'd always loved her work in movies. I mean, she's a wonderful actor. And I, I gave uh, my agent credit for having come up with something that in addition to being a sort of bombshell of a you know, New York theater event was good casting. And so, did you choose to revisit the script at all? We did. You know, I did some tweaks, some minor rewriting, some cuts, some changes. You know, you always do because it's an opportunity and it's a shame not to take it. So the play had been presented to Julia Roberts. You didn't know about that? Um, yeah. Okay, that's true. And, and it came as a surprise to you that she was reading and liked it? Uh, well, okay. I'm not going to say it came as a surprise to me that she liked it because I'm... No, but that, that she was ba- reading it. But, but that she, she was know. reading it. That uh-huh. I, Well, I mean, it seems ridiculous. Okay, we're going to get Julia Roberts for your play. Well, that's absurd. Do you know? Uh-huh. I mean, I certainly didn't expect it to happen in my life. Um yeah, it did. It it it, it was my agent. Uh, he she's with the same agency, and he oversees all sort of the theater. And so it seemed a, a very natural thing for him to do, and it became part of a package. And it be- well, yeah. Now, when a star like Julia Roberts comes to to a play, is there a danger of that star overshadowing the work itself? You know, um, sure. There's a danger. I have to say, there's what happened. That was so surprising and disarming was that the actual process of rehearsal became exactly like every other process of rehearsal. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that we got in the room and suddenly – and the thing, about her, the thing about her is that she was so oddly normal. I always figure that that level of stardom is going to be deranging. And, and she just felt – she's – you know, so you forgot kind of the trappings of her fame because we were in the room and she was just another acting actor working like an actor who had no airs at all. Um, and then, of course, this kind of wild charisma she has um, sort of kept kept sort of, um, you know, uh, showing us why it is she became a great star. You know, she had all of this thing. But it didn't feel that way. So that it became... What happened was when suddenly we were at the theater and 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 hundreds of people were massing around it just to watch her leave, it came almost as a surprise. Well, it did come as a surprise because I'd forgotten that part. I mean, obviously it was predictable, but we had gotten into something that was so familiar and lovely and and engaging that when suddenly strangers were blocking 45th Street in a way that doesn't even feel like New York, really. Um, do you know what I mean? I mean? The great thing about New York is the way people leave everyone alone. Well, it kind of feels like a Hollywood opening. Well, it, it did, it, even in previews. So that part was really strange. And the thing about it that finally is unusual is it's such a quiet play. I mean, I've said that it's such a quiet play and such a noisy event. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain discrepancy there. But in the room where it mattered, where the play was being made, it, there, that wasn't happening at all. 
In the midst of all this, we should say it's certainly not the only play of yours that's gone on this season, that right now as we speak, you have a show down at Theater J in Washington, right. Bal Mask or Bal Masque, who we were discussing. <laughs> I, I think that's optional at this point. We've, yeah. had, we've had seminars on that issue. Well, it's spelled so. M-A-S-Q-E with you, an accent. It does over. have an accent. Yeah. It does have an accent, and yet everyone's tendency to say mask. And for a while, I became completely insecure on the issue, and I'm just cleaving to the accent. So we have Bal Mask in Washington. You had well-appointed room at Steppenwolf in Chicago uh, earlier this season at the Roundabout Naked Girl in the Appian Way, and preview are just starting for the house in town at Lincoln Center Theater. How have you managed to keep your attention on all of these projects, and how involved have you been with each of them? It's been really exhausting. I mean, it really, it's not, I, I, I don't have any sort of, um, I don't have one of those stories about, oh, the energy bars saw me through it. I've, I've been, it's been cumulatively exhausting and it's lifting now because I'm finally working on only one thing. But there, there wasn't... And that's the house in town And that's now. the house in town. And that's lovely. I feel I'm back at the basement of Lincoln Center and I'm working on one play and I couldn't be happier. Um, but there were times when I was going from, a, you know, re- one rehearsal room in New York to a rehearsal room in Washington and then back to New York and then casting the play that was coming to Lincoln Center. It was it was, it was insane and I wouldn't recommend it. Have you ever had this level no, of activity I, at once? No, and I don't, I, I hope never to have it again. Really, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely idea, but it's a punishing reality. And was it a case of you just finished a bunch of plays, sent them out and everybody said yes, or these are things you've been working on over time and coincidentally everybody slotted them I did write three plays in a batch because um, that's the way I work. I, I walk around thinking about plays for two years, and then they all come out, um, or one comes out, it comes out quickly. And this was a time when I was particularly anxious in a sort of global way, as we all are um, when, when we're thinking these days. And, um, and the only thing that kept me under control was to write. And so I wrote the, the plays that became The Well-Appointed Room, um, uh, which Steppenwolf did. And then right after that, I wrote the play that was at the Roundabout, the Naked Girl play. And then this play that's now being done at uh, Lincoln Center, I'd been thinking about at that point for two years and had had about 100 pages of material on. And I had some kind of momentum. And so finally I decided this is the time to finish that play. So does that state of mind ultimately link the plays in some way? Have you have you stopped to look at them? I think, there's, I, I think um, they share anxiety. I think the anxiety takes all sorts of different forms, and when it was very light, too light, and, and comic, um, in another, the anxiety was overtly the topic. That's the well-pointed room. And in the house in town, it just hovers underneath. Well, in the case of a, of a, of a, mu- a musical, we often hear stories about uh, songs being dropped, songs being rewritten, mm-hmm. songs being added to a new show, even a revival songs being added, maybe sure. pulled out of the trunk and all that. In the case of a playwright such as yourself, where you're not dealing with musicals, um, how involved is the playwright in either a new show, as we've been talking, or a revival of a show like uh, uh, Three Days of Rain? How, how involved are you each step of the way? Well, um, with a new show, you have to be a new play. You really do have to be involved because it, it doesn't stop. You know, it isn't finished when it starts rehearsing. You're going to change it. I mean, we even, I, as I said, I even made changes in Three Days of Rain. Um, that one, I, you know, there, I, I, I wanted to be involved because it was such a sort of delightful and charming situation, even though the changes weren't that spectacular. But the other thing is you really hold the play in your head, so you're really helpful 
when you're not the bane of everyone's existence. But that's the other playwrights. That's not me. Um, so, yeah, you have to be there a lot. I mean, the way it worked because of the season with the, the play in Chicago actually rehearsed in New York. And for two weeks, I went to every rehearsal. Um, and then they, they went away and I came back during late previews. But I went to every rehearsal, which I probably wouldn't have done. Um, and stayed through every minute of every rehearsal. Um, and then uh, now uh, I've worked out a really good schedule with uh, Doug Hughes because early on w- with the first play we did, we're bookending the season. He did my play at the Roundabout, and he's doing this D- play. Doug, Doug is the director. Doug Hughes is the director. Yes, yeah. and he um, in the first he sort of likes it when the playwright's not around too much. And <laughs> so I was really willing because I knew the year I had coming up, and I I and then I got sick during that first play, so I really wasn't around very much, and and I I don't think that ended up being the best thing. So now we're on a kind of wonderful alternating day schedule, which seems sort of like the the sort of Goldilocksian perfection. Well, when you sit at a rehearsal or a table reading or whatever, and you're hearing your written words spoken, do you then want to recall them and rewrite them, or do you feel content with the way that it sounds audibly? No, I just want to change everybody's line readings. Uh-huh. No, change, change their performance. Change their performance, <laughs> because the text, of course, is perfect. No, well, I mean, it's a combination. Sometimes, of course, I do want to and indeed do rewrite. Um, sometimes it's a matter of just hearing it over and over again to get it through your bone head that it's quite bad. Um, but it's it's just but it evolves and you and it, it part of the skill of doing a play is figuring out what's the production and what's the play. Going back to my uh, composer analogy from a moment ago, composers sit at a piano, they play the notes, and they hear it aloud. When you write a play, do you read aloud to hear how the words sound? Or I hear it, it. I hear it. You every, hear it within your head. Or I do. You? Yeah. I mean, I'm also. Um, yeah, I I don't like to read in public because I move my lips. No, I think I'm very, but I know it's true. I'm really oral, and I'm an oral both spellings uh-huh. of that word, or both those words, because I do hear every line of dialogue, which is one of the reasons it's a it's good for me not to be in the um, room all the time because I know exactly how every line is supposed to sound, and that's it's not a good pressure to bring to actors who are muddling through. You have a tendency over the years to have had certain actors and, and certain directors who you've worked with multiple times mm-hmm. is part of that because you believe they hear your words the way you hear them? I think so. Um, part of it is you like working with people you like, or you like working with people you like to work with. And then there comes a point where um, you really do need to take a break because you all know each other so well that you're just there's a danger that you're just speaking to yourselves or to each other. Do you know what I mean? You, you can, it can become hermetical. But, you know, when you've had a good time working with people, it, it's, it's not that it's so rare, but you just want to repeat. And as you talk about people that you work with, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention South Coast Repertory in mm-hmm. California, where so much of your work has first mm-hmm. been produced. What's been the relationship there, and, and what do you think they, they give you as an author that keeps yeah. you going back? They, well, well, endless support. They have me on a sort of rolling commission, which has been so useful. Um, what is a rolling commission? Well, it seems whenever I don't have a commission, they give me another one. It's and it's you know you don't turn your back on people like that. <laughs> it's not it's not a stable profession. Um, they also give me an a uh, they trust. Do you know what I mean? There's one of the things I love about it. There's no vanity in the way they produce there. They don't put their stamp on it just to put their stamp on it. If they trust you, if if they believe in you, they give you your head. They give you, um, is that the right expression? They give you room, you know? Um, and 
it's it's also a really great place. It's it's Orange County, California, about which there's much to say, and <laughs> I've said a bunch of it, but a lot of it. But one of the great things about um, starting a play in Orange County. Uh, California is it supplies all your needs and doesn't interfere with your mind very much. It's a place where there's a mall that has everything and it's in walking distance from the theater and there's this general uh, placidity um, to the surroundings where if you don't, where you can not exactly disengage, but there's a train. What I'm saying is there's enough. Um, ruckus involved in doing a play on its own that you don't need, you know, a city to contribute its part. There's a kind of peace to it. There's a regular quality. There's almost a sort of suburban lullingness to it that I find useful. Yet earlier you referred to yourself as an urban playwright. And do you think, is the work perceived by perhaps audiences? Do you think the response to the work out there is in some way different to the way it's then perceived or judged here. Well, it is different, but um, because I think um, some of it is just less personal there, or they haven't, they don't share the experience. Do you know if the plays are if the plays are urban, they're not. That's fine. But they, something that's really quite wonderful there is there's not that um, competitive theater going quality. There's there's uh, there's not a big here to sneer crowd. Which you find in New York, do you know people who come very early just so they can be the first to trash it? The, people who go <laughs> to the theater there actually want to be at the theater. They're not resentful, and they're open to the experience. And that's the um, that's another one of the um, attractions of working there. That there's no there's there doesn't seem to be a big status issue involved in being an audience member. Mm-hmm. Howard had uh, earlier mentioned uh, your new show that's opening at Lincoln Center Theater in a matter of days, even weeks, uh, The House in Town. What What is that? What was it about? The House in Town is actually, I, I used to live in a place, um, uh, uh, an apartment building called London Terrace. London Terrace is um, between 23rd and 24th Streets in Manhattan. I don't know where this goes. West and Side, you said? West Side. It's uh, between 9th and 10th Avenues. And it's this enormous, fortress-like mm. and quite famous building for a while. Every cab driver I had had lived there one po- at one time. I find that that was an – I liked that. Anyway, um, I had my very first agent, the late Helen Merrill, had her office there for a while. And so she told me – and it might not have been true – because Helen was colorful. But she told me that London Terrace um, opened on the day of the stock market crash. I don't believe it did open on the day of the stock market crash, but let's let's pretend it did. So, That's Helen's story, good. and we didn't argue That's Helen's story, and we didn't argue. We, we just good. accepted her, and I liked it. And that the developer went out the window. She also told me something which I really liked and choose to believe, uh, which is that the row of townhouses right across the street from London Terrace was owned, were owned by the um, sort of city's merchants, the store owners. And when London Terrace opened, they stashed their mistresses in apartments in London Terrace. And I really think that's true because when I was living there, and this started in the late 80s, you'd see these frail, really wraith-like women, sort of wander, beautiful women, really wandering through the halls waiting for the mail to come. And they were clearly in their 90s or their 100s or something. And I choose to believe they were they were the original tenants. They just got left there by who, their millionaires. When, when, when the millionaires <laughs> kicked off, they stayed. <laughs> and so that, was the, um, that had always been in the back of my mind for a play. And then, um, so I, I've been thinking about that for years. And then... Uh, Andre Bishop, who is the artistic director of Lincoln Center, um, did another play of mine uh, in 2001, 2002, 
And when it closed, he asked me if I'd ever read a Willa Cather novel. It's actually a novella called My Mortal Enemy. <clears throat> and I had, and I'd loved it. Um, and I and I wasn't quite sure what he was getting at, except it seemed to be some sort of adaptation or something. So I reread it and thought, well, this is a perfect book, and there's absolutely no reason to adapt it. So when he came back to me with it, I told him that, and then he said that hadn't been his idea at all. There was just some thematic kernel or some relational kernel that he thought would be wonderful for a play. So I kept thinking about that. And, and in the way that this happens for me, over the years, a story started to develop. And then when I was in that streak of writing... I, I finally wrote it. I mean, I had most of the text, but it was a matter of, of sort of assembling it. And and that's what I did. So what is the actual story set around this? this well, I don't want to tell building. you because there, it, it seems to be uh, laced with secrets. Uh, so I don't want to tell you too much. But it does take place in the early months of 1929. Um, it centers around a house on Millionaire's Row. Um, and London Terrace is just being uh, erected as the play opens. It's in the final phases of going up. And for the rest, we have to go to Lincoln Center to find out. And for the rest, you're out. going to have to go to Lincoln Center there, I'm afraid. <laughs> I did want to ask you about your choice to work on an adaptation. In all of your work, you, you've really been doing you know, your own plays. And in the midst of this, uh, a few years ago on Broadway, we saw Strindberg's The Dance of Death. And where did that come from? Because it it almost seems a non sequitur in, in your work. I know. It does, doesn't it? Well, I had done that once before for because South Coast Rap wanted me to do an ad- adaptation of the Marivaux play, Triumph of Love. So I did that. And when I did that, I have to tell you, I didn't know what I was doing because um, I didn't know what the task was uh, because I was working from an English adaptation. So as far as I could tell, I was translating from the English to the English. And I just didn't know what where I came in there. Um, this, again, was my, my, my Svengali-like agent, George Lane, really, because it started with him uh, wanting me to suggest a play for a client of his some classic and I won't tell you what the client was because he didn't end up doing it and I suggested Dance of Death and because I'm good at I have a I'm a good sort of librarian that way and um, and so he and he said to me casually um, will you do day after at the adaptation I said sure why not and um, then months and months and months passed and he called and told me don't ask what it is just say yes and I said George I could I could never do that with you um, but <laughs> But he said, just say yes. And I said, all right, yes. And it's, okay, well, the deal's closed. You're going to um, uh, do an adaptation of Dance of Death, and it's going to be Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren, and Sean Mathias is going to direct it. And I said, all right. And, and they it, were cast before you'd even I, put I, I pe- think, pen yeah, to paper remember, or finger to typewriter? They or? were, but the thing is, this time, I knew what I was doing. I realized, first of all, it, it's it's one of the great plays of the 20th century and one of the seminal plays of the 20th century, and, and I just wanted to retype it almost. Do you know what I mean? There's something about typing it, just working with that, that figuring out how it's structured, uh, that's important to a writer, to, to understand what's going on in a great playwright's mind when he's writing something. This brings you nearer to that. And it's exciting. And I realized finally that w- when you don't speak the language, you're actually hired for your inability to deliver a uh, a scholarly text for your inability to come up with something accurate. What what what's wanted from you is to provide the text um, of a theatrical event that originates in the play, but that can be different from the play. And so, what I was hired to do was to use whatever sort of theatrical abilities I had to make it not just um, a musty text from a library that's being acted, but 
a vivid experience that may err and will certainly diverge from the original. And 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 it, those are it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. I think, and the thing is, you shouldn't do it unless it's Dance of Death, where there already exist a number of accurate translations. You you can't um, be the kind of adapter I am and pretend that um, you're uh, strictly being strictly faithful to the original play. When we uh, began our chat, I mentioned that you have been twice nominated for Pulitzer Prize, one of those times, of course, for Three Days of Rain, the other time also, of course, for Take Me Out, the show for which you won probably every major theater award that you could possibly win uh, back in 2003. Tell us about Take Me Out, how that, well, first of all, what the storyline was for those who didn't see it, but also how that came about in your mind, how you developed this Well, this Take concept. Me Out is about a, a, a baseball player, a, a baseball great who decides... Um, to come out of the closet. Um, uh, he does it without notice and kind of out of his own arrogance in a way, um, thinking that it'll all go well because everything has gone well for him. It, uh, I, I was the last person to write a baseball play. Um, but in 1999, randomly, I fell in love with baseball, never expecting to. I, one night I was... I was looking for something to watch on TV because I didn't want to start rereading In Search of Lost Time yet, which is what I find. I have a lot of trouble with August. August is a bad month for me. I need, uh-huh. to, I need a project because I can't concentrate. So I figured I'll reread this book and try to go slowly this time. Um, uh, but I was stalling. <laughs> and I watched a baseball game. And I had been excited in 96 and 98 by the World Series just because you couldn't live in New York and not be excited by the Yankees reemergence as this great team. So I st- and so I started watching one day and thought if this is going to happen again, I just don't want to be just a carpetbagger coming in and scooping up everybody else's joy. I'm going to put in the work in the regular season and I and I applied myself to it and within a week or two I was enslaved <laughs> to, to the game. Yeah. Hooked. I just couldn't th- and I couldn't think of anything else. For six months I actually couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't focus on anything. And so I, I wrote it not because I had some great desire to write a baseball play, but because I was a playwright and all I could think about was baseball. And I really didn't intend to write it or expect to write it as quickly as I did because I was aware that I, I loved it too much at the beginning. And I was in danger of coming up with a valentine and there's really not a lot of um, dramatic value to a valentine. So then what happened is um, John Rocker, the Atlanta Braves, um, uh, well, actually two things happened. One is Billy Bean, who had been a utility player in the end of his career for the San Diego Padres, came out sort of posthumously in baseball terms as a gay guy and went on uh, on TV and said that he thinks you could only at this point in the history of the game come out and stay in baseball uh, if you were an already established superstar. So I thought, all right, well, that's a way to take this subject and make it mine. Um, but I still didn't know what I was going to do until John Rocker gave this really scurrilous interview to um, Sports Illustrated in which he managed to cast aspersions on everybody, basically everybody. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, you know, it was a, it was a grotesque event, but really good for me uh, because I figured I kind of had the force field of the play. I had my protagonist and now I had an antagonist. And I started writing and writing and and finally the there was something tougher about it. It wasn't just isn't baseball great. Um, and I, I kept I, I amassed a lot of material and then finally I had something like two free weeks between 
other work and drafted it because I I I really felt it was irresistible to me in a way that I was unusual to me. I just thought I, I was helpless not to. Well, was it that you wanted to write a baseball play and then you needed some sort of a dramatic hook so that you you invented this fellow coming out, or would it have been the reverse? A guy who was coming out happened to be famous, and baseball was a good vehicle. For no, it. not at all. No, it wasn't that at all. It was the former. It was the baseball. I needed. I needed to find a way to write about baseball. I couldn't think of anything else. So then, how did you decide to write about a guy coming out? Well, it just seemed to player. me. You know, what it seemed to me to make it more my baseball play than you know Ron Shelton's baseball play or John Sale's baseball play or movie or whatever. It just felt all right. Th- this is a point of view. I don't have to go at it as if I was someone who, you know, some like guy who loved baseball from the time he was two. When we were talking earlier about this current production of Three Days of Rain, of course, we were talking about kind of the attendant hoopla that has mm-hmm. risen largely because of, of one of member of the cast. Mm-hmm. There were two pieces of hoopla that came up around uh, Take Me Out, the first being simply the inordinate amount of discussion about the fact that uh, you had a lot of naked men on play, on stage for a period of time. The second was, um, which was not from the play itself, but more discussion about whether there were other gay players in baseball, oh. rumors about uh, a classic play- player from the past who, who was hiding his homosexuality and was he being protected by people. And I'm just wondering how those two things what were your reactions to those issues well i suppose we're not using anybody's name although they were oh well yeah well if it's public information well, it's public been, information yeah. well you know the funny thing is when that the that there was that curious one two punch of the um blind item in the post about some met player who was going to come out soon and then the Rebuttal by Mike Piazza to the blind item, which was hilarious, really, because rebutting a blind item. Um, uh, It's not me. (laughs) It's not. It's that the I am not anonymous or something. Um, That happened when we were in, I think, the second week of rehearsal with Take Me Out. So I felt radioactive or something. I felt as if I'd caused it in some grandiose way. Um, You know, that was sort of sad because obviously it was a matter of protecting endorsements. Um, I don't. I, the truth is, I don't. I don't actually care about their personal lives at all. As long as I know they're not beating their families, I'm fine. I mean, if there's this, as long as I know they're basically decent, I can root for them, and I don't really care what they're doing. So that's oddly not my issue, even though it would seem to be. Um, uh, yeah, but that that was a curious coincidence. Also, because um, the play pivoted on a bad pitch, a pitch that ended up that ends up killing somebody, and. A- I was doing the sort of the polish on the first draft the day that Clemens um, uh, threw that ball that knocked out Piazza. And I um, that also felt so peculiar. That felt so peculiar. I thought, um, this doesn't happen that often. You seem often. to be almost foretelling the future. I, you know, I seem to have that power. <laughs> I just I, it, I don't ask for it. It's a burden, but I seem to have a. And that's why you said some of your plays in the past. To give it a rest. Rest. <laughs> I just I don't I don't want to harm those who are still with us. Well, did you get any reaction from the sports community on Take Me Out? You know, I did. I and and the 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 funny thing was, um, like a lot of sports writers really embraced it, and that was incredibly gratifying to me because 
every now and then you'd get like you know someone from time saying well baseball players don't write like that don't talk like that and then you know from the arts page and, and <laughs> like the sportscasters and the players themselves who saw, had no problem at all with the authenticity so that was kind of great did you that, do did you do any research did you hang out well, in locker I mean, you rooms know what? I, no i didn't hang out in locker rooms i didn't do that research I, it was a lot of i read everything i read all the but, but you know what it wasn't research it's just the play came out of what i was doing anyway do you know what I mean? I didn't research for the play. It's all I wanted to read about. It was all I wanted to watch. And so that just happened, that I had the information. So how does one then write in the in the, in the language of, of you an know, athlete? You, well, a lot of it has to do with like listening to their interviews uh-huh. and reading their interviews. And that's what you do as a playwright anyway, is you, you overhear a snatch of something on a bus, or, and, and then a, a whole character emerges. And you... A lot of it is is uh, uh, it's a form of uh, mimicry. It's it's you know. And it would seem to indicate that you must have a good ear for picking up figures I, of speech, the way I, people I, talk. Well, I, I, that's what you're supposed to be able to do. Well, to be able to write in somebody yeah. else's voice, other yeah. than, than your own. Yeah, you do. It's it's there. You know, you'd be able to do riffs. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I want to come back to Three Days of Rain because I just read in. Variety that uh, it has been optioned for a film. <laughs> and I uh, just want to ask what the plans are. Are you being engaged to write the film? Well, you know, here's the deal. Um, it was actually optioned for a film years ago. I mean, three or four years ago. It's just now the rights have been... It's the next step. It's a it's new a, acquisition it's of a, the rights. It's okay. this, but it's the same. So it's not, it's not a further development. And let's see. Do you know what I mean? You can't. I mean, it's there are producers. There's, there's, um, there's been a script, and let's see what happens. Well, I'm just curious. Without asking you to reveal too much, if you say you've already you've written a mm-hmm. film script for it already, you is what you mean by there's already yeah. a script. Yeah. Um, in the device of the play, mm-hmm. the same actors playing those roles. Is that something that you're retaining? And if not, what does that do to the nature of the piece? I think it's. Uh, I think. If it becomes a film, the film will be very different from the play. Hmm. And that's it, as much it, as you're saying. That's you as much as I'm saying. That's as much as I'm saying. Well, in 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 what sense? Uh, Storyline or well, staging? I, I think the, the the thing is, so much of the play is in the way it's told, and I think it will be told in a very different way. Uh-huh. And so it'll be a f- even even while retaining a lot of the dialogue, it will be fundamentally different. Okay, enough of a tease. Thank you. Uh, I mentioned at the outset a prolific playwright, any desire to write other forms, whether they be theater, musicals, whatever, or the great um, American well, novel, anything like that. You know, I've, I, 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 I would like to write a novel. I've always wanted to write a novel. Um, and maybe I even will, because I've certainly written enough plays. Um, the thing is, I start something, and it always turns into a play. That's the problem. It just it, it keeps, the, that form keeps drawing me back. But um, I, I think I am going to be working on a musical again. A musical that already exists, in fact. Well, it seems a musical you, you've that worked it, on Pal Joey. And it seems I'm reworking that, on yep. Pal Joey. I, that's what they tell me at any rate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just people tell me what I'm doing, and I do it. I'm a good boy. Basically rewriting the book? I seem to be rewriting the book that I've already rewritten. But it seems I, – I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's really in the beginning stages, and I, I don't know if any of what I did last time is, is going to remain. Again, another little tease toward the future. Yeah. 
Well, on that note, Richard Greenberg, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you very much. Thanks, Richard. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.